Good morning. It's a delight to be with you. Um, our family has been in the UAE now for, for five years. Come August, this next month is our sandiversary. Um, and it's been a delight to, to be involved in what God is doing in this country, bringing together people from so many nations to be in unity together in the church. He's calling together a people for himself here. And um, I've, I've heard much of what God is doing in Abu Dhabi, but I've never seen it until now. This is my first time to worship in an Abu Dhabi church. So praise God for what he's doing in this country. We'll, we'll pray that God continues to work among you. Um, and pray even this morning that, um, that his word would feed his sheep. Charles Blondin was a famous 19th century acrobat and stunt artist. He became famous in 1859 for walking a tightrope above Niagara Falls uh, on the border of the United States and Canada. He stretched a cable across the Niagara Falls and he walked across it. Many crowds flocked to see his stunts. After completing that first stunt, Blondin announced that he was going to do it again, but this time he was going to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope, but this time he was going to push a wheelbarrow and someone in the wheelbarrow across that tightrope, a push cart. So a newspaper reporter came to interview Blondin. Blondin asked the reporter, do you think I can do this stunt? The reporter replied, I really believe you can. I think you're the greatest stunt artist of all time. So Blondin asked, you believe I can do it? Well, then you get in the wheelbarrow. The newspaper reporter never got in. You see, for the reporter, there was a disconnect between what he believed and what he did, what he was willing to do, between his faith and his actions. He believed that Blondin could accomplish the great feat. He'd already seen him do many amazing things. But when it came to acting on that faith, he hesitated. At times, we can be similar in our faith as Christians. We believe in God. We trust in Christ for salvation. But if you're anything like me, there are moments where there is a disconnect between what you believe and what you do or between what you believe and what you say. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning from the book of James. The New Testament writer James saw a similar disconnect in the lives of Christians in his day. And he writes in the letter of James to address these inconsistencies that we have as Christians. James saw that at times Christians could confess faith in God and then go on to do things or say things that were completely godless. Living like God doesn't exist is like a practical atheism. We are living such practical atheism when we acknowledge God's existence, but God doesn't enter into different areas of our lives as he intends. And it's this kind of hypocrisy that James is speaking to. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of James. We're going to be looking at James chapter 4, verses 11 to 17. Quickly for context, the letter of James was written by the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, the younger son of Joseph and Mary. And he was one of the leaders in the early church, a pastor in the church of Jerusalem. We read in the book of Acts that persecution entered into the church there in Jerusalem, and that led to Christians being scattered outside of the city and into the areas around. 
So he writes as their former pastor this letter to encourage them to persevere through these trials. He tells them also to resist temptation, and he calls them to live lives in this world that honor God in all that we do and say. He's already spent considerable time addressing the subject of our speech, our words in this book. And he returns to the subject again here in chapter 4. So skim the book with me really quickly as you're turning to James. James chapter 1, he begins by calling Christians not to blame God for our temptations there in chapter 1 verse 13. That is, understanding that even when God brings trials into our lives, it isn't to tempt us to sin, but to help us grow in our faith. And then in verse 19, he tells them to be quick to listen and to be slow to speak and slow to anger, knowing that the anger of God Sorry, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And then in verse 26, he says that true religion involves getting a hold on our tongue. In chapter 2, in verse 12, he tells them to speak and act as those who will be judged one day under the law of liberty. Chapter 3 has the most extended dialogue on our words, and he warns of the danger of our words, comparing our words to fire that destroys And he says that our tongues are impossible for us to control with our own effort. Also, in chapter 3, he calls out Christians for being double-tongued. At the one hand, blessing God, and in the next moment, cursing men who've been made in the image of God. And then in chapter 4, our own chapter, he addresses the fights that so often characterize Christians. And he tells us that the fights that we have are not the result of things outside of us, our circumstances, or even other people but a result of what is inside of us, our own evil desires. This is where our passage picks up, starting in 4 and verse 11. And the main point this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. This is the main point from the text. Judgmental words or boastful words reveal a heart that has forgotten God. Judgmental words or boastful words reveal a heart that has forgotten God. And we'll have two points this morning. Judgmental speech and boastful speech. And I pray this morning that we would have eyes to see any hypocrisy that resides in our own hearts and lives, in our own words. But I hope that we would not only have conviction of sin, which is important, but even more important, hope that is found only in Jesus Christ, the Word of God made man, who alone can cleanse us from our unclean lips by cleansing us from our unclean hearts. Let's begin with point number one, judgmental words. James 4, verses 11 and 12. Let's start reading. This is God's word. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy But who are you to judge your neighbor? I'm told that the most famous Bible verse in the world today is Matthew 7 and verse 1. Judge not, or you will be judged. Don't judge me in so many ways summarizes our perspective in this day. We don't want anyone to judge us. In fact, so often we don't even want God to judge us. In our sin nature, we don't... We don't think that anyone has the right to tell us what to do. And yet at the same time, the irony is 
while we don't want others to judge us, we're so quick to judge others in our hearts, with our minds, and even with our words. What kind of speech is James talking about here when he forbids such evil speaking? Well, it's criticizing others, as, the, as one translation puts it, or speaking against someone with an evil motive, with evil intent to tear them down. This would include all manner of critical speech with evil intent, including gossip, including gossip, where we talk about others behind their back to tear them down, to make ourselves look better than others. Or slander, where we talk behind someone's back to discredit them or to ruin their reputation. James tells us that when we speak in this way against a fellow Christian, we put ourselves in the place of a judge, above the law. And to do so is to judge even the law, to criticize the law itself. This kind of speaking, gossip, slander, criticizing, so often it comes from a desire to compare ourselves with others. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He talks about these super apostles, these false teachers who were constantly comparing themselves with themselves and measuring themselves by themselves. And in doing this, Paul says they were not wise. We can be in this way like, like siblings vying for our parents' attention and approval looking for our significance in comparison with others. If you're involved in this, as so often we are, let me encourage you, Christian. If you're a child of God this morning, God loves you. God loves you, and he doesn't play favorites with his children. And if he has loved you in Christ, if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, he cannot love you more than he has loved you in this moment in Christ. Now, there's a difference between the kind of judgmentalism that James is talking about here and the kind of godly judgment that Christians are, are called to take part in. In judgmentalism, we take upon ourselves a role reserved for God alone. However, God does call his people to judge rightly. In 1 Corinthians 5 and in Matthew 18, the church is called to Call to an account someone who calls themselves a Christian and yet is living a life of unrepentant sin. And actually, the command that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 5 is, it is right for you to judge those inside the church. Also, in 1 Corinthians 6, we have a situation where members of the same church are dragging each other into the secular courts and suing each other to solve their disputes and problems. And Paul says, is there no one among you who can judge between you in these situations? He says, one day you're going to judge angels. Is there no one among you that can judge between you in this way? So how do we tell the difference between a judgmentalism that James is talking about and the kind of godly judgment that we should take part in as a church and as Christians? Well, if you're confused, here are six practical points for you as you consider your speech and your words. Number one, number one, consider yourself first. Consider yourself first. Before you go and speak to someone, as Matthew 7 puts it, take the log out of your own eye first. That is, don't go and call someone out for their sin when you're living in unrepentant sin yourself. And when you go and speak to a fellow Christian to lovingly call them back to repentance and to a right relationship with God, Realize that we are sinners too. 
that we're not coming to others above them, but alongside them as a fellow brother, sister in Christ, as a, as a fellow creature in God's creation, realizing that we are all together going to one day give an account to the same judge in God. That's point number one, consider yourself first. A second practical point, consider your motivation. Consider your motivation. Perhaps the easiest way to recognize judgmental words is to consider the heart and the attitude behind it. Ask yourself, am I acting and speaking with love in my heart or is there hatred underneath this? Am I acting to encourage and to build them up or do I actually want their downfall? Am I actually pursuing them to tear them down? Remember that speaking the truth in love means that we consider both what we say as well as how we say it. You know, truth can be used as a weapon only to hurt. But while truth and love may wound, the motivation behind it is to heal and to encourage and to build up. A third practical point, be open in your speech. Be open in your speech. That is, don't say anything behind someone's back that you wouldn't say to their face in the same way as you would say it if they were right there in the room with you. For some of us, we find it easier to talk behind people's backs, to backbite. This is a, a good rule for us. Be open in your speech. Others of us are a bit more fierce, having no problem attacking people to their face or going up and telling people exactly what we think about them. Now, just because you're comfortable saying mean things to people doesn't give you the right to say mean things to people. We have different temperaments and different temptations. Let me encourage you to be open in your speech, but loving as well. A fourth practical point, desire your brother and sister's holiness. Desire your brother and sister's holiness. That is, don't fear being judgmental to the extent that you never pursue your brother that is clearly in sin. You should, we should desire each other's holiness to such an extent that it causes us to go and out of love desire their holiness more than avoiding the awkwardness that such a conversation might have. We are called at times to lovingly rebuke and to correct our fellow Christians. And calling sin, sin, is not judgmental. It is being faithful. We are called to take God's side against sin, against all sin. We are to take God's side against our sin and even against the sin of our brothers and sisters. James will go on to say at the end of the book, a wonderful promise in James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's number four, desire your brother's holiness. A fifth practical point, imitate God in your speech. Imitate God in your speech. As Christians, we have an opportunity to be image bearers by the way that we talk and speak to those around us. God is to be our example in how we speak. What's wonderful about God is that he actually does speak. He doesn't give us the silent treatment, and he doesn't leave us in the dark about who he is or about who we are, about how we are to be relating to him and to one another. A helpful way to imitate God in our speech is to make Ephesians 4 our roadmap. James 4, 11 and 12 is here telling us what not to do, but what should we do? Well, Ephesians 4 is a wonderful roadmap. 
Ephesians 4.15 tells us that we should be speaking the truth in love and that in this way, as we speak the truth in love to one another, we're to be growing up into Christ, into maturity as we build each other up in love. Ephesians 4.25 says, put away falsehood and let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And Ephesians 4, 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And that leads us to number six in terms of practical points in our speech. Be quick to both offer as well as to seek forgiveness. Be quick to both offer and seek forgiveness. You know that our words have power. Power to build up and power to wound and tear down. Do you know that we can hurt one another more deeply with a handful of words than we might be able to do with all of our physical power? If you know you have hurt someone with your words, let me encourage you, brother or sister, pursue them. Seek their forgiveness. Don't go on pretending that you've done done nothing wrong when you know that you have. Seek the forgiveness of your brother or sister in Christ. And if your brother or sister in Christ asks for your forgiveness, remember all that God has forgiven you in Christ and forgive them. Do you know that those that are in authority have unusual power with their words? Let me speak for a moment, some practical application for those that have such authority. If you're a husband, you have authority in your home and authority over your wife to be used in love, to build up as God uses his authority for good, to encourage, to to engender growth and thriving. So let me ask you, husbands, How do you speak with your wives? How do you speak with your wives? Do you use your words to encourage them, to build your wives up? Do you use your words to help them understand what is true about God from his word? As Ephesians 5 says, washing with the water of the word. How do you speak with them? Or do you tear them down? Do you criticize them? Do you use your words to show them their sins and weaknesses only without ever encouraging them? Let me also ask you, husbands, how do you speak about your wives when they aren't there, when you're with your friends and co-workers? Do you speak about your wives in ways that give them honor and would encourage other men to do the same? Wives, if you are a mother as well, you have authority with your husband in the home to be managing the home together, and you have authority in the home. So let me encourage you, wives, how do you speak to your husband? Do you speak to your husbands in such a way that would encourage their leadership and build them up, help them to lead in ways that would be godly in the home? Or do you use your words to criticize and to tear down? Are you there to regularly remind them when they fail and to rub their noses in it or to bring up past failures in such a way that causes them to be paralyzed, afraid to lead in the home? Let me ask you, wives, how do you speak about your husbands when when they're not there? when you're with your, your friends or your coworkers, You speak about your husbands in such a way that would cause others 
to treat them with respect and honor? Or do you speak about them in ways that criticize them and flaunt their weaknesses for others to hear? Let me ask moms and dads. Moms and dads, you have unusual authority when it comes to your children. And your words have unusual power with your children, as I think all of us, I think all of us can testify to as those who've had parents and have been wounded in the past. Let me ask you, parents, how do you speak with your children? Do you speak with your children in ways that teach them and train them up in the knowledge of God, as Ephesians 6 puts it? Do you help them to understand who God is and who we are as as fellow creatures in, in God's creation? Or do you only speak with your children in ways that criticize them and show them their mistakes and weaknesses? Let me encourage you parents to build up your children with your words, to encourage them and to point them in the right way. Though our job as parents includes discipline and training and instruction, we may need to correct them. We should also use our words in such a way that would build them up and help them understand who they are as those that have been created in the image of God. And let me encourage you, spouses and parents, if you have sinned against your spouses or your kids with your words, let me encourage you to apologize, to seek forgiveness. Even parents, and this is maybe one of the hardest things that we have to do as parents, let me encourage you to humbly go to your children if you've sinned against them and ask for their forgiveness. You know, it isn't our job to model perfection to our children but actually to model repentance to our children. We are not perfect, and we should never pretend to be as parents. Just because we're the parent doesn't mean that we do everything right. And it is a wonderful example for our kids when we go to them and say, Mommy and Daddy have sinned. I love you, but I'm a sinner too, and I need Jesus too. Let me ask for your forgiveness for the way that I talked to you or the way that I treated you. When we criticize our brothers and sisters, we are rejecting God's law and deciding that we can judge others based on our standards. And doing this, James says, is criticizing the law itself. You see, when we criticize others, we in fact desire to be in the place of God, to be God. We want to be the one to make the rules, to create the standards. And when we speak evil of another, we are with our words, making declarations about what that person is and what they deserve, condemning them in our court. My children like to climb into my office chair at home and pretend to be daddy. My four-year-old son particularly loves to climb up on my chair and bang away at my keyboard and say, look, I'm a pastor. (laughs) This kind of pretending is cute, even comical for children. But do you realize what James is saying here? That when we speak evil of others, we are climbing into God's seat, climbing into his chair pretending to be God. And it isn't comical. Not only could we never step into God's shoes or fill out his chair, we have no business ever trying. Who are we to take such a position? James tells us, Christian, step down from your high seat. You are no judge. You are not God. Only one can take that position. And look at verse 12. How many lawgivers and judges are there truly? There's only one. And what qualifies him to be the lawgiver and judge? His power to save and destroy. Do you have this power? Do you have the power to save or to destroy? No. So who are we to judge one another? 
nobody. We are nobody to judge one another in this way. So do not take to t- seek to take others into your hands. And remember that the judge is coming soon. Don't let him find you in his chair. He won't be amused. Now imagine for a minute that you were Satan. Imagine how you would tempt or attack Christians. Imagine the tactical advantage of getting them to focus on tearing each other down. For Satan, this is a two-for-one deal. If you can get Christians distracted with criticizing and destroying each other, you wouldn't have to do it. And they'd get distracted and forget why they're here on earth, that we're here on earth to fulfill God's mission of proclaiming the gospel and living lives that reflect the gospel to the watching world. Remember, Christian, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Don't do his work for him. What's amazing about the gospel is that the one who, for whom alone it was right to judge in this way, to condemn even, Jesus didn't do it. Though it was right for him to come and to condemn humanity for our sin, for our rebellion against him, though it was right for him to judge and condemn all of us, he didn't do it. No, he stepped down from his throne and from his judgment seat, and he came and took on humanity. He took on human flesh. He came to earth in kindness, and he came to show us the way of mercy. He took upon himself our judgment on the cross so that we could relate to God no longer as a judge who would condemn us, but now as a father who would love us and gather us to be with him in his presence forever. Even when those that were killing him on the cross, what did Jesus say? Father, condemn them for they deserve it. No, what did he say? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. He showed mercy even on those that were killing him. Brothers and sisters, if you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, realize that Jesus is your example. Jesus is our example. Follow in his footsteps. Look at each other with mercy and not with judgment, realizing that mercy triumphs over judgment. That's point number one. Judgmental words. Point number two, boastful words. Point number two, boastful words. This is verses 13 to 17. Let's pick up reading in verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James continues with the theme of our speech here in verse 13 to 17. But he turns to the subject now of boastful words. As we can be godless with judgmental language, putting ourselves in the place of God, so we can be godless with the way that we speak of the future and with the way that we plan. Making declarative assertions about what we are going to do in the future does two things. One, it forgets that we do not know the future. Forgets that we do not know the future. Do you see that in verse 14? You do not know what tomorrow will bring. Only God knows that. And in fact, for all we know, Today may be our last day. God may bring us home or Christ may return before the end of this sermon. 
We cannot see the future. And to speak as if we do is to put ourselves in the place of God. But also these declarations, these boastful declarations about the future do a second thing. It forgets who we are as God's creatures. Forgets who we are as God's creation. James is reminding us that we are always those that have been created by God. And we were created by him and for him to be completely dependent on him for everything, for our life, for our breath. God created us to be weak so that we would delight in relying on him for strength, for direction, and for purpose. So what is James' solution to such boastful speech about the future? Well, look at verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, Lord willing. This is why Christians say, Lord willing. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Some jobs that we have are more apparently dependent on God than others. My dad comes from a long line of farmers. And growing up as a teenager, I worked for a local farmer who attended our church. And that farmer was a man of much prayer because as a farmer, he knew that his job was dependent on the rain and on the sun, things that were outside of his control. My first job after university was as a waiter, a server in a restaurant, waiting tables. And my job was entirely dependent on my tips, the gratuity that I would get afterwards. And I remember in those days being a man of much prayer. I remember praying over every single table on certain days because there was a bill that was due. And I would pray before I would approach a new table, Lord, let them be generous. Lord, provide for me through these tips. And then I got a job with a steady paycheck. And I stopped praying so much about my provision because now I could plan. Now I knew how much I was going to make. Now I knew how much money was going to be coming in each month. And I became a planner. I began strategizing how to save and how to prepare for this or that. And I stopped realizing to the same extent how much I was dependent on God for my provision. I began taking things into my own hands. That's the temptation, isn't it? We begin to believe that we are in control of our provision. James is saying that we as Christians need to be aware that we are reliant on God for everything, for our health, for our strength, for our life, and even for our physical provision. So how are we to plan for the future? Do we stop planning altogether? Do we sit at home and do nothing? No, we account for God in our speech and in our plans. We should apply Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, as so many of us have memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. The Apostle Paul is clear in the Thessalonian epistles that idleness or laziness is out of the question for Christians. There were Christians that thought, well, if Christ could return at any time, and it's going to be soon, I'm going to quit my job and pray and wait, wait on the Lord. But what they were doing was relying on other Christians to go and work and make money and to feed them. And Paul says, if a, an able-bodied man who refuses to work, you shouldn't feed him. He needs to feel that hunger pang to such an extent that he gets off of his rear end and goes and gets a job and works and makes money and provides not only for himself, but even so that he can be generous and care for others as well. Paul also says in 1 Timothy 5, 
that an able-bodied man who refuses to work is worse than an unbeliever, a man who refuses to provide for family when it's in his power to do it. Now, as we consider a passage like this, I realize that we are in the UAE, and so many of us are expats. We have made similar declarations in the past. I am going to move to the UAE, and I am going to live there for a year or two, and I am going to build my career and make money and provide for family. Whoa. Where does James leave all of us with a passage like this? Are we all in sin? Do we all need to pack our bags and go home? Well, I don't know. But I believe that we all have to consider the possibility that some of us have that we have acted boastfully in moving here or perhaps in staying here too long. So how do we think about the future and speak of it? How is it that God is supposed to show up in our thoughts and our plans for the future? How do we make decisions in ways that bring God's priorities into our decision-making? You know, we naturally want to make decisions independent of God or at best make decisions and then come to him for that final rubber stamp or approval. So how do we make decisions as Christians in ways that honor him? Well, here are six practical points to help us consider this as Christians. Six practical points in our decision-making. You ready? Number one, number one, as you make decisions, consider God's priorities. Consider God's priorities. That is, read the Bible, and as you read the whole Bible, consider what is God's will for my life expressed in the Bible? It's, it's helpful for you as a Christian to pursue discipleship as you study God's word with other people. As you come and hear God's word preached, take the things that you hear and apply it and consider God's priorities, not simply your own. So often our cultures or even our family's priorities are different than God's priorities for us. And if God's priorities are different than your cultures or even your family's priorities, we must take God's priorities first. Number two, a second practical point, seek counsel. Seek counsel in your decision-making. You know, God has given you a pastor. That's what elders and pastors are for, to help to guide us, to not only understand God's word, but to understand how it applies to our lives. Seek counsel, even from fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So often this becomes the last thing we do rather than the first. Proverbs says, in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. That is, when many wise people speak into our lives, there's safety in our decision-making. So let me encourage you, Christians, seek counsel. Number three, number three, and this is very important. Weigh all of your responsibilities. Weigh all of your responsibilities as a Christian. So often when we make decisions, some one priority becomes the most important one. And we can be rejecting other responsibilities that we have in order to meet that one priority. And so often it's money. So often it's finances that drive our decision. But we as Christians must consider all of our responsibilities. So what that means is, if you are married, if you're a spouse, consider your responsibility as a husband or as a wife. That is a responsibility that you cannot reject or put off. If you're a parent, let me encourage you, consider your responsibility as a father or as a mother. Do not think that you can take that responsibility and delegate it to someone else. No, God has given that to you if you have small children. 
And consider your responsibility as a parent when you make decisions. Now, we must consider money. But let me encourage you, Christian, to not only consider money, but to consider all of our responsibilities as Christians. And perhaps it means taking a job that pays a little less in order to be responsible with all of our our biblical and spiritual responsibilities. A fourth practical point, pray. Pray. Pray individually. Pray with other people. And even ask others to pray for you. Allow your decisions to be full of prayer from beginning to end. And connected with this, a fifth practical point, follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Or perhaps a more practical way to say this is, Follow your conscience. Follow your conscience. What is your conscience? Your conscience is your internal, God-given sense of what is right and what is wrong. It has been given to you by God to help you distinguish between what is right and what is wrong. Now, your conscience is supposed to be growing as you grow as a Christian. And it grows as God's Word speaks into your life and as the Holy Spirit leads and guides you. But it is clear from the New Testament that it is our responsibility to follow our conscience and to live with a clean conscience. There's a danger as Christians where we can begin living against what our conscience is telling us to do is right, and we can dull, dull our conscience. We can become, as Paul says, those that have consciences that have been like seared with a hot iron, meaning they've become completely numb and dead. We have no ability anymore to determine the difference between what is right and wrong. So often, as, even as Christians, we can have a dull conscience and our flesh can take over. And we make decisions based on the flesh rather than based on the Spirit. Let me encourage you Christians to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And if He has told you what it would be right for you to do in your heart and you know that it's right, do it. As He says here in verse 17, for him who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And lastly, And maybe most importantly, a sixth practical point, consider your spiritual health, not just your physical wealth. Consider your spiritual health and not just your physical wealth. So often when we make decisions, we think first, I need a job. I'm going to move to wherever it is that I can find a job. And then I'm going to find a house as close to my job as I can afford. And then I'm going to look around and see if there's any churches nearby. What if we did it the other way around? What if we built our lives around a healthy church? If we decided, you know what, here's a church where I'm going to grow in my faith and where I know I'm going to be spiritually cared for. And perhaps it means taking a job not exactly in in our area or a job that isn't exactly in our expertise or doesn't exactly have the salary that I hoped for, but yet I know that I'm going to be spiritually healthy even if I'm not physically wealthy. Let me encourage you, before you move, seek counsel to be sure that there is a church wherever you're going, wherever that job offer comes from. And let me encourage you parents as you send kids off to university. Rather than just thinking of the best university that they can get into, why don't you help them think through the kinds of universities that they could go to that are near good churches to be sure that they not only get a good education, but that they don't lose their faith along the way. And let me encourage you Christians that Christ is our example in decision-making. You remember when he was tempted by Satan, that Satan came to him and offered him all kinds of things. 
including it looks like a way out of the cross to have all of the treasures and all of the cities of the earth without having to go the way of suffering, the way of the cross. Did Christ give in to those temptations? Did he take matters into his own hands? Did he take his future into his own hands? No, he didn't. He trusted the leading of his father. He trusted his future into his father's hands. And he said as he was weeping and sweating tears and sweat of blood in the garden, as he asked, can this cup be taken from me? He said, not my will, but yours be done. Let me encourage you, Christian, to follow the example of Christ, trusting your heavenly father wherever it is that he leads you, knowing that he has your good in mind. I know a passage like this on words is hard for all of us to hear because we so often sin with our words. But our words are like a thermometer. They're like a thermometer. They don't make us unrighteous. They reveal that we are unrighteous. Just like a thermometer out there in this desert heat. The thermometer doesn't make it hot out there. It tells us how hot it is out there. Our words are like that. They're revealing our hearts. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the solution here isn't just to stop our mouths or become mute or to stop talking altogether. No, the solution is to have our hearts cleansed, to have our hearts washed clean. The only solution is to have a complete transformation. We need God who alone is able to save. And it is this Christ, this Christ who alone is our Savior, the one who was the judge who did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This same Christ, who though he was God, yet he humbled himself, following the will of his Father, wherever his Father would lead him. So let me ask you, Christian, how are your words this morning? How are your words lately? Are you denying God with your words or representing him well by the way that you speak? I spoke at the beginning about how we can be godless with our words. Well, there's a way in which we can rightly be godlike, not in terms of getting up on a throne or a judgment seat and declaring judgments or, or even boastfully declaring the future, but we can be godlike by imitating our Savior, by imitating God by the way that we talk with one another and representing him well as his image bearers in this world. We have an opportunity to represent what God is like by the way that we speak to one another and to those around us. As as the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4, let him who speaks, speaks as if he were declaring the very words of God. Let me encourage you, Grace Church, to speak in this kind of way with one another and to the watching world as you preach the gospel and display such godlike living for them to see. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for making it so clear to us what you are like. Thank you that you are such a good God, a good God who rules justly, but who also, but who also shows such wonderful mercy to sinners like us. Thank you for the mercy that you displayed on the cross as you sent your son to be the sacrifice for our sins. Thank you that he, in mercy, has given us an example for how to show mercy to others. 
and even an example for how to live in such a way that we entrust ourselves to you. We pray that we as believers in this country would speak in ways that represent you well. And even in our decision-making, that we would make decisions that honor you and that lead to the good of those near us and those around us. We pray that you would do this for the good of your people and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.